Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Father's Day 2023 is coming up in a few days, and considering what a crucial role fathers play in society, I thought I would make fatherhood the theme of this week's podcast. This will be something of a special Father's Day for me because, although I already have practically a basketball team's worth of daughters, this year I am blessed with a son as well. He's a little over seven months old, and yes, I know I should use a gender-neutral pronoun for him until he's old enough to let me and his mother know what gender he is, but bear with me. I'm old school, and I'm still getting accustomed to our brave, new, gender-confused world. For now, though, I'm just going to assume that he's a boy because he has the genitalia traditionally associated with one. Anyway, even though they say sons and mothers have a special relationship, which they do, sons have a special relationship with fathers, too. I and my wife are already trying to raise our daughters to be good human beings, of course, and we will do the same with my son, but it will be a different experience for me, because for the first time, I'll be raising a fellow male. I feel that I have an extra connection with him that I don't with my daughters because I'm not female, so there are simply some things that I have no experience with and little understanding of, and that's where my wife can step in and fill that gap. Conversely, where my son is concerned, I feel that I bring an extra level of understanding that my wife and daughters can't. This is not at all to suggest that I love my son more than my daughters, or that there's some kind of a distance between me and my daughters uh, that can't be bridged, or that I cannot relate to them, because I'm very close to all my daughters. But the reality is that I feel a sort of special duty or responsibility to be the model for raising my son right, for guiding him in ways that only I can, because I have been where he one day will be, and I don't want him growing up to make the mistakes that I did as a man, or to drift aimlessly as I did for a long while. I don't like stating this publicly, but my own father was old school as a parent in some of the worst possible ways. He didn't consider it his role to have anything at all to do with raising me. That was the mother's job. Partly because of his own upbringing, he was living on his own by the time he was 15, he had no conception at all of how to guide me toward being a man. I can honestly say that I can't point to a single life lesson that my dad taught me, either by word or example. And so by the time I was 15, my parents were divorced, and I had no male role model in my life. It took me a long, long time to stop drifting aimlessly, to begin to grow up, and to start accumulating life lessons and wisdom on my own, the hard way. So I have no intention of depriving my son of that wisdom and those life lessons and that guidance that he will need. Our culture is in dire straits in terms of our understanding of masculinity and what it means to be a man. We are in serious danger of becoming an emasculated civilization in the West. And so I think it's more critical, possibly than ever before, for men to get their act together and to start reclaiming and rebuilding the culture we are losing. A better world begins with better men. And better men begin with good fathers guiding their sons away from our culture's emphasis on narcissism and juvenile irresponsibility and toward traditional masculine ideals of duty and virtue. And that brings me to my guest at the Right Take today, a man who's written a book called 
appropriately, lessons my father taught me. It's a few years old, and I just read it recently, and I think, I think it's just the right book to talk about in time for Father's Day. So please stay with us here at the intersection of politics and culture. You don't want to miss this discussion. And don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so that you don't miss any of the important conversations we are having here. Remember, if you like what you hear, please leave a review. It really helps. We'll be right back with my guest after this really cool musical interlude, which is written and performed, if you're curious, by a friend of mine named Mark Elster. Don't touch that dial. guest today at the intersection of politics and culture is Michael Reagan. You may have heard of his dad, Ronald Wilson Reagan, the 40th president of the United States, a conservative icon and an American hero. But Michael is a New York Times bestselling author, political consultant, and a highly sought after public speaker in his own right. He's also the president of the Reagan Legacy Foundation and a world record setting powerboat racer for gosh sakes. He's written several books, including memoirs, uh, one of which I'd like to chat with him about today. It's called Lessons My Father Taught Me, The Strength, Integrity, and Faith of Ronald Reagan. And I think it's the perfect book to talk about and the perfect author to talk to as we head into the Father's Day weekend. Michael Reagan, welcome to the Right Take Podcast. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Mike, some people may not know that you were actually adopted. How about if we begin with you telling us how you came into the Reagan family? <laughs> Best decision they ever made. Uh, the, uh, yeah, if they don't adopt, they don't have a conservative son. What can I tell you? <laughs> so adoption's good. Uh, you know, I got in. Uh, a lot of people don't know. My mother was adopted. My stepmother was adopted. My sister adopted a little girl from Uganda. So we're like a piecemeal family. Uh, I got in because back, back in the early days of Hollywood, uh, you remember Ozzy and Harriet used to sleep in separate beds. Uh, because they didn't want people to believe they were actually having sex, and that's how the ch children came into play. But if you were pregnant back in those days of the 40s and 30s and 40s and early 50s, uh, if you were pregnant, uh, you weren't going to be in any movies. So there was a lot of us children who were, in fact, adopted into Hollywood families as babies. And... My sister Maureen had a lot of friends who had older brothers, and she thought that was kind of neat to have an older brother. And so one day, she and her parents, Jane Wyman and Ronald Reagan, who were the cat's meow of the 1930s and 40s in Hollywood, uh, were at Schwab's Pharmacy on Sunset Boulevard. And Maureen walked up to the pharmacist and put 97 cents on the counter. And the pharmacist said, what do you want, little girl? And my sister Maureen said, I want a brother. And so it got Jane and Ronald talking, thinking, and happens to be that a young girl who from Ohio who had gotten pregnant by a married man um, ended up coming to Hollywood and found out that Jane Wyman and Ronald Reagan were looking to adopt a child. And so she contacted Jane and Jane told her, you know, if you have a boy, call me. And on March 18th, 1945, after 55 hours of labor, uh, Irene gave birth to me. And as I tell people, I was 
born German, and three days later I was Irish. As I joined the Reagan household, it was a big event in Hollywood. Army Archer was there from Daily Variety. I used to kid Army Archer when we got together because I kind of grew up and knew him all my life. I said, Army, I said, you, you were the first male figure I ever saw, Army. <laughs> you know, I was laying in my crib and you were there to cover my coming to the home by Daily Variety in Hollywood. And we used to laugh about that. And what happened, that's how I, I got in the family. So German to Irish in three days. Before we touch on uh, your dad and politics, let, let's talk about your dad as a dad. You mentioned in the book uh, that he had an unusual parenting style and that he didn't spank or scold his kids. He would tell a story or a parable instead, which, in fact, you note that he approached politics in, in much the same way later on down the line. But can you give us an example of how your father used a story or a parable to teach a lesson to his children? Well, you know, it's, it's just he, he taught me he taught me patience by taking me ground squirrel hunting. And you're probably thinking to yourself, how does that teach you patience? Have you ever sat down and waited for a ground squirrel to pop its head out of a hole? I mean, think about that. And we'd be sitting out there, it seems to me like for days, waiting for one stupid ground squirrel to pop its head out of a hole. And that, that's, that's how he taught me patience, to be patient. Now. He taught me patience in shooting ground squirrels, but about everything else, I'm impatient. So what can I tell you? If, if I go out hunting, I'm very, I'm very patient. But don't, don't, don't bother me with other, other issues of the day. Uh, yeah, just one. He just, he would just really, he would talk to you about life. He would sit there and. I remember my dad. What I remember, my dad. What I remember is that red station wagon coming around the corner of Sunset Boulevard, coming down, you know, to three thirty-three South Beverly Glen on any given Saturday morning when I was, you know, home from school, and pulling the driveway or pulling out that front and picking me up, picking me and my sister up, or me and my sister and a friend up, and riding out to the ranch and regaling me with stories of the military songs, the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard, all of those things on the way out to the ranch. And and just talk to me about how great this country was and how lucky we were to live here and how the military keeps us safe and and, and what have you. And uh, the time he spent in the military, well, a lot of people don't know that, you know, he was in the Coast Guard. He wanted to be in the, not the Coast Guard, he was in the Cavalry. He wanted to be in the Army but he couldn't pass the eye exam. So he wanted to be in there so bad, he went out and he memorized the eye charts. And so when he took his eye exam for the military and they asked him to read line three, he had it memorized. He just read off the numbers because he had it memorized. And that's how he got in the military. That's how he got military. And he ended up doing 300 training films for the United States military during the Second World War. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Who does that? And just those things that he would talk to. That's how I learned. That, that, that's how I learned about how he got in the military. He's the one telling me what he did and had to do. So, you know, if you if you want to do something bad enough, you find a way. I think it's easy for fans of your dad, like myself, um, to tend to idolize him a bit. 
But you note very honestly and perceptively in the book that fathers and sons sometimes disappoint and misunderstand each other. And that was true of you and your father, too. He wasn't perfect. Um, But you did write that he didn't make excuses. He listened when you talked to him about ways in which he was falling short. And he genuinely wanted to be a good father to all of his kids. What lesson did that teach you about family, about the importance of family, a lesson that maybe you carried forward into your own family? How many people listening come from divorced homes? My dad was the was my father, but he was divorced from my mother. But he never forgot that he had another family. He didn't walk away and say, well, I've got a new family. You're now not that important to me, or you're half as important. No, he looked at, he looked at Maureen and I equally as he looked ultimately with Patty and Ron. We were his kids. And, and so he spent that time with us on a regular basis, uh, whether it's stopping his, on his way home and driving down uh, Holmby Avenue and seeing me playing football in the park with my friends and, and coming over and playing football with me as a surprise. I didn't even know he, he was driving down Holmby. Uh, but again, he, he never forgot. And I, I write in my book that I've written a few books. It might be in this one also, that divorce is when two parents walk into a child's room and take everything the child knows and he loves and breaks it and walks out of the room and expects the child to put it back together. We do not put it back together very well. And so, you know, conversations I had with my dad about things that happened to me as a child that he he wasn't aware of, uh, you know, really began it began a conversation and uh, it's tough being a child of divorced parents. It's tough, uh, you know, just tough being in, uh, in school, you're boarding in school. I I came home, (laughs) I came home, I I went to all boys Catholic schools, uh, gosh, fifth through eighth grade. And then I started high school and I came home one weekend from Loyola High school, my my dad says, "Hey, you're taking Connie Freiberg to the uh, Marlboro uh, uh, Junior Prom." I said, "Excuse me, I'm doing what?" Well, she doesn't have a date, and so I volunteered you. You go to an all boys school, so I'm sure you don't have a date either. Uh, no, because I didn't get an invitation to that prom. But I said, "Why am I taking Connie?" Well, she doesn't have a date, and I volunteered you. And you know, Connie, you all grew up as neighbors. I said, "Yeah." But dad, we need to talk about why Connie might not have had a date in May when everybody knows about these things in like September. And so so I took Connie to the uh, junior prom at Marlboro High School and uh, my grades weren't doing very well. And that was 100% my fault. It wasn't happy going to an all boys boarding school. Had other issues I was dealing with at the time. And uh, my dad says, how do how do we bring your grades up? I said, well, you know, if you send me out of state to a, you know, to a school that has boys and girls, um, I promise to bring my grades up. And I said, the reality of it is, if I'm out of state boarding a school, I know I can't come home at night. Right now, I'm 30 minutes from home. And I miss home. I'm there. I won't miss home, especially if I have my own dates on Saturday night. 
So I ended up going to school in Arizona at Judson and worked out great. I graduated National Honor Society. I was the high school football player of the year in Scottsdale in 1963, uh, you know, all these things. And, but the problem was I was a great football player, but my family could never see me play because they were in California. And so, so when Frank Cush called my dad, who was a great coach at Arizona State, uh, and one, I came home for the holidays, and, and my dad says, you know somebody named Cush? I said, Frank Cush? He says, yeah, he called. I said, Frank Cush called you? And he said, yes. I said, why? He wanted to talk to me about offering you a scholarship to go to Arizona State next year and play football. And I went, oh, my God, what'd you tell him? He says, I told him to give that scholarship to somebody who really needed it. I can afford to pay for your college education. And I, and I looked at him and I said, what did you tell him? And, and that became Frank Cush's Ronald Reagan story literally till the day he died. Uh, Ronald Reagan turned down a scholarship to his son. I said to my dad, I said, you need to know the difference between welfare and scholarship, Dad. You blew it. People are often asking you, and in fact, I'm about to do the same, uh, what your father was really like. Was he as authentic as he seemed to be, or was it an act? Um, did he live with integrity as it seemed that he did, or was he a hypocrite behind the scenes? You write uh, in your book that the public Ronald Reagan was seamlessly joined to the private Ronald Reagan. Could you elaborate on, on that a little bit? Oh, ab- absolutely correct. His sense of humor was the same at home. I mean, I, I, give me a talk about sense of humor. The day he shot, March 30th, 1981. The next morning, my wife and I, Colleen and I, would go see him at the hospital. We had to be there at 10 o'clock. Flew overnight, C-130, he sent. In fact, I told him when I got there, he said, you ever send a C-130 for me again? I'll shoot you. Um, <laughs> terrible. It's a rough ride. And uh, so, but we walk in at 10 o'clock in the morning. My dad looks at me. He says, this is six hours after he's off the table. And uh, I said, good morning, Dad. He said, good morning. He said, you know. If you're ever going to get shot, don't be wearing a new suit. I say, excuse me? He says, yesterday, you know, I was shot. I said, yeah, the world knows you were shot yesterday, Dad. He says, well, I was wearing a brand new blue suit. I just picked it up the day before. And and the last time I saw that suit, it was in shreds in the corner of the hospital. And they actually cut that suit off of my body, and it was in shreds. And that's why I tell you, if you're going to get shot, don't be wearing a new suit. I said, well, thank you for that heads up. He says, that man that shot me, Hinckley? I said, yes, John Hinckley. He says, I understand his parents are in the oil business. I said, yeah. I understand they live in Denver. Yes, they do. Do you think they have any money? I said, Dad, they live in Denver in the oil business. Of course they've got money. Do you think they'd ever buy me a new suit? This is six hours after he's off the table. And, 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 and what he what he does what he did was he uses humor to put you at ease because he understood himself he understood he understood the he understood who he was he knew who he was but he also understood the magnitude of who he was and he knew that people would be nervous name name the word 
uh, in his presence. And so he used humor to, in fact, kind of like tone it down and make you smile, make you laugh. Here, here's my a son worried about his dad who came within minutes of dying. And he's saying, do you think these guys would buy me a new suit? Uh, one of his qualities that I think is an endangered species today was his humility. He kept a plaque on his desk in the Oval Office that read, there's no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. Uh, and you say that that was not just a platitude for him, but that it was literally how he lived his whole life. Could you talk a little bit about his humility? Well, I mean, just you go up to the ranch in Santa Barbara and what's on the wall are not pictures of famous people. They're pictures of his horses. You know, you you walk into the bedroom at the ranch in Santa Barbara and there's two twin beds tied together with those little straps you tie things together with in the garden. Because Nancy was so comfortable on her, her twin bed, uh, he didn't want to replace it with a queen bed in that bedroom. Uh, but he was too he was too long and tall for his side. So he strapped them together with those little straps you use in the garden. And he took a table and put it at the end of the bed on his side, put a pillow on top of it and a blanket so he had a place for his feet when he slept at night next to Nancy because he wanted her to be comfortable. Would you do that? No way would I No way would I do that. Colleen knows I wouldn't do that. But he did. He, the humility, uh, the, not, the man who never used the word I, always use the word we, uh, letting other people take the credit because the bottom line is, like you said, there's no telling what a man can accomplish where he can go if he doesn't worry who gets the credit. And look at the things that he accomplished. And we credit him. But who did he credit? The Berlin Wall coming down, who did he credit? Pope John Paul, Lech Valenza, Vakal Havel, Helmut Kohl, Mikhail Gorbachev, Margaret Thatcher. He didn't, he didn't pat himself on the back. He patted everybody else on the back. And, and we don't do that today. And by the way, all those people I just mentioned, they're not alive today. There's no, there's no leadership like that in the world that we live in today. But back then, you know, those, those leaders needed a leader in the United States to bring them together to march forward through it all. And I think one of the great lessons I learned from my dad through all these things was the fact that he forgave John Hinckley before he ever went back to the White House. And likewise, Pope John Paul II forgave his would-be assassin before he went back to his papal duties. So you have two of these great leaders who don't just recite the Lord's Prayer, but actually live the Lord's Prayer, who ultimately get together and form a bond that ends up bringing peace to Poland, freedom to Poland, and bringing down the Berlin Wall. And what's sad today is all those places that became free because of those two people at Margaret Thatcher and so on are all reverting back to what they were before those two entered the room. Yeah, there's, there are great lessons there. Um, as a politician, your father uh, naturally had political enemies and opponents, but there were many on the other side of that political fence who nevertheless had a surprising respect for him. In fact, you talk in your book, about running into the actor-activist Alec Baldwin years ago. Uh, and, of course, Baldwin leans pretty far left. <laughs> At the gym. Yes. But when you introduced yourself to Alec Baldwin, he kind of surprised you with something that he said about your father, didn't he? 
Yeah, I, I actually, we were at the gym together, and I came out of the gym and went up to him because I think he's a great actor. I went up there and introduced myself. I said, you know, Mr. Bowen, my name is Mike Reagan. I just appreciate, I think he was doing Third Rock at the time. And I said, I just appreciate appreciate your show. It's a fun show. I love watching it. Uh, he says, I know who you are. I see you in here at the gym. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, you're, you're, you're Ronald Reagan's kid. I said, yeah, I'm, yeah, that's Ronald Reagan's kid. He says, you know, I miss your father. I said, excuse me? He said, I was just having, I was just having uh, dinner or something with some of my friends the other night. And he says, even though I, I disagree with your father on all these issues, the reality of it is we all miss him and wish we had someone like that today. And, and, and that's really the, the, the magnet that allowed him to bring people on board and win an election, whether it's California or nationally as president of the United States. There's so many people who disagree with my people, my people, my father politically, but liked Ronald Reagan enough that they trusted him to vote for it. And, and that's what we're not doing today. We're not doing it at all. Uh, my dad never, never said, you're my enemy because we disagree politically. My God, all he had to do was come home for dinner. He had, a, he had a daughter who was Peace and Freedom Party. He had a son who was an atheist. But what, is he, what does he end up doing? He invites his daughter, Patty, and her friend who, who had a march on Washington during her father's administration, invited them into the Oval Office to sit and talk about why they were marching. Uh, his, his son, my brother, who's an atheist, I'm sure people have seen the commercial, which is sad. My dad grabbing my hand at the dinner table one night saying, my prayer is before, you know, they're gone, that both my other children accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. But he still had them at the dinner table. And today you don't do that. Today we don't do that. Today we don't put them at the dinner. If I disagree with you, you're not going to be at the dinner table. And therefore, nothing gets done. And we're in a constant battle, constant fight, 24 hours a day. And so I'm the son of a man who's not only respected, but loved around the world, not only here in the United States, it doesn't matter where you go in the world. He's loved and respected because, because that's how he treated everybody else. He treated everybody else with that love and that respect. Anybody who met Ronald Reagan will tell you they thought they were his best friend. I think I know what the answer to this will be, but along those lines, what do you think your father would have to say about our current political arena? How, how do you think he would feel about the kind of political vindictiveness and divisiveness that we see going on, if he were to suddenly reappear and say, throw his hat in the ring again, what kind of a campaign do you think he would run that would set him apart from his competitors and opponents? He wouldn't have to run a campaign to set himself apart. He set himself apart just by jumping in. But I'm, are, you, are you even sure he would get the nomination? I mean, there's a lot of people who love him. Absolutely. But again, you live in a world, you know, with social media anymore. And all of a sudden you're going back, well, you know, he, he, uh, he in 1986, Simpson Mazzoli, he gave amnesty to the, to, the, to the illegals and all this stuff that goes on. And, and that's, what's, that's what's sad. Um, you know, he, he believed in the 80-20 rule. And now it's like, a, it, it's a 100% zero rule. If I don't get everything I want, I'm walking away. Uh, and he had the 80-20 rule. So, yeah, we love him because you all knew him uh, type thing. 
but he would be saddened with what's going on in America. And he would he would think as I do, social media has been the destruction of of our society in the United States of America. You know, you you, you listen you listen to Fox, you know, and I listen to Fox, but you listen to Fox to be mad at the left. You you listen to CNN or MSNBC to be mad at the right, and everybody goes to bed mad. Everybody goes to bed mad. Man, why is Gutfeld number one at night? Because he makes you laugh. You laugh, but everybody else is angry and pointing fingers. And and you got to find that area of where can we come together and get things done. You're not going to win every game, but you, you know, but you can win. But but you've got to be able to step back. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, let's go with the INF Treaty. You know, that was signed by Gorbachev in Washington D.C. after Dad walked away in Reykjavik. But you know that the INF Treaty that Dad signed in in Washington was the INF Treaty that Mikhail Gorbachev brought to him, which is exactly the same the same treaty that Dad took to him in Reykjavik. But Dad didn't say, "Wait a minute, what am I? I'm I'm signing my own agreement here." He didn't say a word. He allowed, he knew that he needed to give Gorbachev credit and for him to take credit. So that's why they ultimately, they signed it in Washington, go back to Moscow and sign it again. He needed to give Gorbachev credit in his own country to keep him perked up and in power. If he undermines Gorbachev, then everything else off the table, nothing else happens. He had a great sense of history because he was a reader and i say in the book i talk about reading and i tell young kids at american at young americans foundation when i speak there which is often to the groups that come in i tell them, readers are leaders readers are leaders if you want to be a leader you need to start reading and read really good books that you're going to gain knowledge from that can move you forward if you're going to read just the internet and read your your cell phone you're not going to be that you're not going to be that leader because you won't have any knowledge when you look at the the political landscape today is there any leader on the left or the right that you think could be described as reaganesque no there really there really isn't i think reagan was one of a kind He's a one-off type thing. Um, and you have people who like to think that they're Ronald Reagan. You know, like the other day, I was doing a tour out at the library with a group of people. I go out there and I do tours for organizations that I have them uh, auction off tours in the library for eight people. And then I do the tour. And that organization makes money for their organization or foundation. And I take people on a tour. And I was out there and somebody walked up to me and said, did you hear what Trump said about your father? I said, no, what he say? He said he has more support than Ronald Reagan ever had in the Republican Party. And I and they said, what do you have to say about that? I said, well, if you get a chance to talk to Trump, have him call me when he wins 49 states. <laughs> <laughs> Real simple. <laughs> you know, winning primary is one thing, but call me when you win 49 states. Call me on the phone. So there's a lot of people like to be like Ronald Reagan, but they aren't. Uh, you had mentioned something about your father's faith uh, a, a little a few moments ago. 
some of your father's critics claimed that he wasn't serious about his religious faith, that his Christianity was kind of a facade just to attract votes from the Christian right. But you say in your book that he could not have been more serious about his faith. Can you tell us a little bit about Ronald Reagan and God? Well, he was a Sunday school teacher as a child in Dixon, Illinois. His mother from the Disciples of Christ was a Sunday school teacher in Dixon, Illinois. Uh, I mean, you can just start there. Uh, at at that point, you know, when I was living with them, part of when I was in high school before I went to Arizona, you know, he used to get up every Sunday morning and get Nancy and Ron and Patty together, and they would all go to Bel Air Press and and go to church. I I said to my dad one time, I said, you know, you get everybody up and take them to church. He never asked me to go to church with you. He says, no, because you're Catholic, and I don't want to upset your mother. <laughs> okay. Uh, which is fair, fair to say, because my mom was Catholic. She was, she was born. I mean, sorry, she was buried as a Dominican nun of the Third Order. So, uh, yeah, we were all baptized December eighth, nineteen fifty four. But probably the most poignant story I can tell you is on Air Force One on Good Friday of uh, nineteen eighty eight. I was hitching a ride with my dad back to California for Easter Sunday. Nancy was up at the ranch. And, of course, I live in L.A., and I used to ride, spent the night at the White House. And as we're landing at Point Magoo, my dad counts out the number nine on his fingers. And uh, I said, what's significant about the number nine? He said, nine more months, I'll no longer be president. I said, you're looking forward to that? He said, yes, I am. I said, why are you looking forward to it? He said, the reality of it is, Michael, he says, ever since I was shot, Ever since I was shot, I have, I, I, and I remember looking at that rear window of my limousine and seeing people laying in blood uh, from bullets that were meant for me. I uh, haven't gone to church on a regular basis. I haven't wanted to put anybody else in harm's way. And, and so I haven't gone to church. And I'm looking forward to no longer being president. So each and every Sunday, I can go back to church on a regular basis and visit with my Lord and Savior. Oh, and just to let you know, I said to my, I said to my dad, I said, why don't you go this Sunday? He says, it's not on the schedule. And I said, hey, but think about it. And he said, okay. He left and got, got in the car and went to the ranch and I went home. And about eight years ago, nine years ago, I was telling that story at the Young Americas Foundation at the ranch uh, center in Santa Barbara. And John Barletta was a secret service agent in charge of the ranch was in the audience. And John came up to me afterwards and said, so you're the guy. I said, I'm the guy what? He says, you never knew? I said, knew what? He said, your father went to church that Sunday. He called down to the Secret Service and said, get everything ready. I want to go to church. So I found out eight years ago that he actually went to church that Sunday. And when he could no longer go to church because of Alzheimer's, they would have the minister would go to the house and the minister would 100 percent of the time say, I went to the house to minister to the president. And instead, he ministered to me. Uh, in your book, uh, Lessons My Father Taught Me, you, you list a dozen lessons that I think are all very vital truths that everybody needs to take to heart, uh, whether you're on the political left or the right. Uh, they include lessons like speak the truth, live the truth, which I think is very important for today, live to influence others. Uh, and never underestimate the power of one. I don't want to give away any spoilers about your book, but is there one lesson maybe 
more than any of the others that's been the biggest life changer for you or had the deepest personal meaning for you? Well, I mentioned it earlier, forgiveness. Forgive. If you can't live, learn to forgive, then you'll be an angry young person the rest of your life. How many of us let somebody else's attitude determine ours for the remainder of the day? Remember when Sam Donalds is yelling at my dad, my dad's smiling. When, when Mondale goes after him in a debate, what does my dad do? He, you know, gets that twinkle in his eye and says those words to Mondale about his youth, you know, what have you. The debate's over. You know, you need to learn to forgive and have a great, great sense of humor, but learn to forgive. When, you know, Hinckley gets forgiven and, and we go on, we go on from there. Uh, because if he doesn't learn to forgive, then he, then he's angry. He was the first president ever shot that lived. Every other president ever been shot, never, nobody lived. He lived. They've been president shot at, but this one got shot. And, and so if you can't, what happened in your life? How many of us go through life because our, our dads didn't say they loved us? And so I'm going to use that as an issue to make sure I fail. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make my dad, you know, I'm going to fail and punish my dad for not saying he loved me. You go, really? How smart is that? But how many of us do that? And we use, listen, when I, I learned when I was eight years old, because I was in, my mom put me in day school, I mean, day camp after school. For a year of my life, I was sexually abused by a day camp counselor. He ultimately made me, you know, made me part of child pornography. And he, he made me develop the photographs. And he had, he put his hand on my shoulder after one was, the first one came up. And he said, wouldn't your mother like to have a copy of this? I used that, I used that to almost destroy my complete life. I used that. I blamed my parents. I blamed God. This wouldn't have happened to me if my, they hadn't adopted me. Why, why would you allow this to happen to me, God? I, 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 allow, I allowed that man who sexually abused me and took photographs of me and made me part of child pornography. Uh, and he didn't get rid of the photos until he died in 2007. Um, I let that man destroy so much of my life. But anyway, I say that I let that person like control my life and destroy my life. But finally, when I learned, when my dad taught me about forgiveness and I learned to forgive myself and, and really get on with my life, my life changed, but I had to learn to forgive. And my dad taught me that greatest lesson you can have. Don't let someone else's attitude determine yours. And I was allowing my molester to determine my life instead of me determining my life. And thank God I did. That's a great lesson and probably a good place to begin wrapping this up. Mike, can you tell us about the Reagan Legacy Foundation and uh, what, what's going on there and how people can support that? Reagan Legacy Foundation, we started back in early 2000 when the USS Ronald Reagan was put out and commissioned and christened. And we have a program there. We have a scholarship program for the men and women who serve aboard the USS Ronald Reagan. We give $1,000 scholarships to the men and women who serve on the ship and $2,000 scholarships to their family members who were left at home to try and better their education. Nobody else does that. And so they really appreciate that we help the families who are at home because people forget the family at home is serving as much as the person on the ship. So you can go to ReaganLegacyFoundation.org. Uh, you can hit donate. Uh, you don't have to give a thousand. You don't have to give two thousand. You want to give a lot of money? Fine. You want to give a hundred? That's great. We send out checks a couple times a year. 
uh, now in June we do, and then around the holidays in, in November, December uh, for the kids. So regularlegacyfoundation.org, see what we're doing. There's some photographs up there and, and what have you. Keep up the good work. Listeners, I highly recommend that you pick up a copy of Michael Reagan's book, Lessons My Father Taught Me. It is a must-have if you're a Reagan fan, and if you're not a Reagan fan, it will make you one. Not only is it uh, poignant and entertaining and even enlightening, but it'll make a great Father's Day gift for a lot of fathers and sons. Michael Reagan, thank you for giving us your time and your insights today at the Right Take Podcast. It was great having you stop by. Thanks for having me. Be well. Take care. Happy Father's Day. Same to you. Listeners, thanks for joining us. Just another reminder to subscribe to The Right Take so you don't miss any of the conversations we're having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review. It really helps. Thanks, and see you next time. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.